Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Unrivaled talk, Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Nationwide, by your side, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is Monday morning. The blue sky is upon us. It was pretty awful around the weekend though, wasn't it? It rained all day yesterday. Uh, even the dog didn't want to go out in it. Let's put his coat on, but I didn't go with him. Uh, there's plenty to talk about this morning. We've got Claire Fox on, Baronesque Fox, uh, no doubt, from the Academy of Ideas. She's the director of that. Uh, we've had many, many good conversations about many things. We're going to talk about class war. We're going to talk about Keir Starmer, who wants to take away charitable status from private schools. I don't think it's such a bad idea. Uh, we're going to talk about the migrant problem, of course, as well. Apparently, the Home Office is not only useless and not fit for purpose, they also thought it was a great idea to send a load of people out of Manston, uh, because it was overcrowded, into hotels around the country, even though some of them had diphtheria, which killed one of them and maybe about to kill a few other people. Brilliant. Well done. We'll talk about China coming up later on in the show as well. Ian Williams is here. Uh, he's written several books about China. Uh, he's been a foreign correspondent for Channel 4. He's worked for the Sunday Times as well. Also, uh, we will, of course, eventually have to talk about Matt Hancock, uh, who's apparently out of the jungle uh, and now wants to maybe get out of politics. Well, if we can help him along, that'd be great. The NHS is also in the firing line this morning. Guess what they've done? Uh, they have more than 2,000 middle managers on six-figure salaries doing absolutely nothing to curb uh, the waiting times and the waiting list for people. Uh, we've also got uh, stories about doctors disappearing. Uh, we've also got stories about the education system in general. Uh, we're going to be talking, of course, um, about Peter Hitchens' column at the weekend. He wrote about the Church of England and why it's taking the knee to football. We've got the World Cup, of course. Big game tomorrow, England versus Wales. I'm pretty sure England can't really fail to qualify for the next stage. But, of course, anything's possible. We'll take a quick trip out to Doha. We'll take loads of your calls as well. 0344 499 1000. And in Scotland, uh, we're going to go up there to talk to our good friend Stuart Weir about the death the sad death of the weekend of Dolly Weir, uh, a legendary rugby player, uh, an amazing person, a great figure. Uh, we, of course, interviewed him right here on this very show uh, some time ago with Daisy McAndrew. And we were going to be uh, celebrating his life, really, uh, commemorating uh, his death. But also we'll be talking about the weirdness of what's going on in Scotland, because apparently now professional footballers are being told uh, they're not allowed to head the ball the day before playing football. What? What? 
So heading the ball is now so dangerous that they can't do it. Well, how can they do it when they're playing then? It's all right when they're playing, it's just before they play they can't do it and after they play they can't do it. So you can only do it during the time you're playing. What about if you're playing before that? When is before a game, a game? When is after a game, a game? Do you see, do you see how difficult this can become? 0344-499-1000 is the number. Also, what on earth is this government doing? I don't even know what they're doing. I don't know what they spent the weekend doing. I tried to watch some political programs over the weekend. There was literally nothing being said by anybody. Huh? This is Talk TV. I'm Mike Graham. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on. If only there was some way to find the truth. That's what we would be doing. I feel as though we're about to enter December because we are on Thursday, it's going to be the 1st of December. Christmas trees are going up all over the place. Christmas lights being lit around the country uh, in various villages of the, of the nation. Um, but it doesn't feel very Christmassy to me. And it, doesn't, it feels kind of like we're in some kind of weird limbo place. Let's talk to Baroness Fox and find out if she feels the same way. Claire, very good morning to you. Good morning. I don't know. I, it's the first time, right, I've done a show on a Monday and I'm kind of not sure what to do. I don't know what we're talking about. I don't know why we're talking about it. I don't know whether there's a sort of over, overhanging issue that we need to fix. There's nothing There's nothing going on, is there? Well, I think the government, once they issued that mini budget, mm. hoped that would just quell things. We know that if you look at the opinion polls that the Conservative Party are in free fall, there's a sense that change is imminent, but it's also the case that nobody's very excited about a change of government because there might be criticism of the Conservatives, but there's hardly any enthusiasm, I think, for the Labour Party. Mm. Certainly not mass enthusiasm is a kind of shrug yeah. that they'll probably win. So I do think there's a kind of stasis in politics. And yet there's also a lot going on politically, I mean, in different ways. And so you have mentioned that People are worried about the migrant crisis, and there's actually a bit of an uprising on that. There's also uh, a huge amount of concern about the NHS. And I mean, it's not just the usual, the NHS is in trouble, but I think people realise now that the original purpose of the NHS, which was you know free at the point of delivery for everyone, is over. And that actually one of the things that finally put the nail in the coffin was lockdown. And then internationally, there's a huge amount going on. You've mentioned China, but you can't underestimate how history just comes at you like that. Mm. I mean, China, where criticism of the government just doesn't happen, and public riots on the streets with people calling for the Chinese Communist Party to go, calling for democracy, actually naming the president as somebody they want to get rid of, is really, I mean, not since Tiananmen Square anyway, as it precedented, but it just feels like a genuine revolution of sorts. Even if they manage to get rid, even if they manage to suppress it, something extraordinary has happened. I think that just shows you that lockdown period, you know, the whole COVID era has kind of almost sparked in people something that uh, won't go away easily. Yes, I think you're right. And also, one of the things that I have noticed over the course of the last few days is that people are kind of at the end of their tether. You know, there's an awful lot of short-temperedness going on. There's an awful lot of people who say nothing works in this country. We can't get... And I, th I suspect the Chinese reaction to what's going on there is similar. People have just gone, I've had enough. I'm just not taking it anymore. Somebody asked me this morning, do you think we'll have another lockdown in this country? And I went, I just don't think people would take it. No. I mean, I think that 
you know, there, there was that um, uh, trade union campaign, you know, the RMT involved, and the slow and the name is enough is enough. And I'm only making that point because I thought that was a great slogan because mm. I do feel as though people have had enough. Yeah. Uh, the reason I was mentioning China was that, well, I mean, apart from the fact it's extraordinary in the course of world history for this to have occurred, um, is that uh, two things, which is is that the lockdown policies in China are absolutely extreme. And, you know, it is shocking to imagine, as was just said on the news, that one three-year-old in that terrible fire in a sealed up block. I mean, this is like Grenfell. Yeah. But it was actually, they couldn't escape because of lockdown, right? They were sealed in mm. and that three-year-old child had only ever lived in lockdown and died in the fire. And the, the point about it was, was that that has led to this extraordinary uprising, but that lockdown zero COVID policy was advocated by British politicians. Yes. I mean, it might not have been severe and we're all now saying how brave and heroic those demonstrators are in China. But you will know that anyone who went on any of the anti-lockdown demonstrations in the UK were written off, they were demonised, they were traduced, and they were, you know, rounded on by the police, mm. right? So I think that people just feel, you know, there's something ill at ease here. And we can't even escape by watching the World Cup, because that suddenly got mad in politics. Mm. You know, that would be a great kind of escape. Um, you can't escape by watching I'm a celebrity, get me out of here because it's a, you know, a reality TV program, which is good fun because there's Matt Hancock. So I do feel as though people are simmering underneath and really do want a positive alternative. And I think it's important that those of us who have the opportunity encourage people to remain positive because that like seething resentment under the surface isn't actually that helpful because it can become very negative. So I take inspiration from what's happening in China rather than imagine it's going to happen in the UK, it isn't. No. But we also have to be positive about what we're going to do to ensure that the politicians don't just get away with doing things to us. Yes. I think, I mean, with every week that you find new news stories which are kind of curtailing either, one, our freedom or our ability to actually do anything because things are so expensive, and we saw an example of that at the weekend with Sadiq Khan deciding that he's going to expand the ULEZ zone to places like Dartford and, and you know, practically Orpington, I mean, it seems mad that you're, you're, you know, you've got a government which is just squeezing people more and more and more and more. And there's only so much you can squeeze them. Well, actually, that, that, uh, the Sadiq Khan Ulyss thing really, really annoys me. I mean, I understand that people are frightened and furious about the fact that their living standards are on the line because of the economic situation we're in. Yeah. A lot of people do understand that some of that economic situation is not just because of conservative policy. You know, there's a deep problem with economic uh, prosperity in this country. And there has been a productivity problem for some time. And we've been living on cheap money and low interest rates artificially created for some time. Mm. So that's one thing. When then Sadiq Khan, the opposition party, the mayor of London, actually brings in what is effectively an austerity measure, an unnecessary austerity measure, and is sanctimonious about it, saying, oh, he's doing it in order to save lives because this will improve uh, air quality, when actually it's just a tax for the coffers of the London mayoral team and, uh, and Transport for London. This is an atrocious attack on people because it means that 
ordinary people going about their lives have to pay more. And we know that it's part of a, an attack on driving, on drivers. And it, this, it, one of the things that really upsets me is when they say the only people who have, you know, the poorest people don't have cars. Mm. I've obviously never understood that for many people their driving is their livelihood, that for many people, you know, driving, uh, you know, their kids to school, their adult members of the family to hospital or care homes. Any, anyway, it's none of their business. Yeah. We have cars because we live in a free society. We should be able to drive them without having to pay through the teeth for it. Yes, but also <laughs> it's, it's, for many people, there is an alternative. You know, if you live in the outskirts of London, places like, um, you know, Bromley, um, you know, there are buses, but there's not much. There's no real public transport network that you can use to get your kid to school or to go to the supermarket or whatever. So people have cars because that's what they need to use to get around. And, you know, this kind of net zero madness, which I don't particularly want to get into this morning with you, is driving all of this. You know, and they don't understand. I mean, 80 percent of the people who were polled by the city of London, by the mayor's office, said they didn't want it. And he's done it anyway. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that's really... Um, and interesting because I've been having this argument over the weekend is when you point out that the consultation indicated that people didn't in the majority want to have this and the same is also true of uh, uh, low traffic neighbourhoods mm. that have sprung up all over London completely disrupting people's lives and what was a kind of you know half mile journey uh, you know to cut through a road you know it takes you like an hour and a half because you have to drive all the way around mm. And, and often the consultations indicated that public support didn't exist. And then you have people saying, yes, well, all right, the public didn't understand the importance of LTNs or yeah. ULEXs or whatever. In other words, they're completely contemptuous of, of what people want yes. or not. And because they know better. They always know better. And as you say, we're not, we don't want to get down the eco route again. But net zero is one of those issues. And there are many others mm. which... A, a small group of people decide that they know what is best on behalf of ordinary people and they are contemptuous of anyone who argues against it. And yeah. they just hang on and do the policies regardless. And, and that is modern politics, unfortunately. And I think we have to try and change the record on that if we can. Stay with us, Claire, if you would, because we've got lots to talk about the welcome collection uh, also in the firing line this morning uh, because they've got rid of a display uh, because it was racist, sexist and ableist. Would you believe? Uh, we'll find out from Claire Fox exactly what that's all about. Coming next, right here on Talk TV. Talk Radio. The home of common sense. Permanent. Persuasive. Profound. Radio with an answer for everything. Talk Radio. On your mobile, on your wavelength. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Peter Hitchens coming up, of course, a little bit later on in the show. We'll be talking about football with him. Uh, Claire Fox has already touched upon the kind of wokery uh, of the World Cup. The likes of Gary Neville, uh, Gary Lineker telling us all about the human rights abuses in Qatar. I'm waiting to hear from them on China. Uh, no doubt, you know, the BBC will be putting their uh, football focus uh, hat on and uh, telling us all about the uh, problems that are going on uh, with uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, but let's talk to Baroness Claire Fox about something else, the Welcome Collection. Claire, um, this might be something that not everybody knows about, but, you know, it's a pretty famous collection of artefacts that were kind of put together by the founder of the organisation, Henry Welcome, who died in 1936. Um, the latest victim of um, what you can only call the new kind of um, overarching protection league. You know, we must be protected from what might have happened before that might have been unpleasant. 
So this is a, a this really is a, an example of a philistine cultural vandalism. The Welcome Collections was opened uh, about 20 years ago. Mm. It's a, a museum on Euston Road, very accessible for people. Henry Welcome, as you noted, was uh, died at the you know in the 1930s, but he was a, a an entrepreneur who'd made you know millions, billions, and he left his money and his um, in his will and his collection of artifacts that he collected from all around the world, mm. looking at the history of medicine. And he left them to endow a scientific research, medical research, which we, hundreds of thousands of people have benefited from. And I was actually on the Welcome, um, the Welcome Trust public engagement uh, body, a, a voluntary body. I was asked to go on it. And the great excitement was when they decided to open this museum, that all these artifacts he collected, which really gave everybody an insight into how medicine had developed from all around the world and um, was opened as part of public engagement to allow the public to see how medicine has developed or universally can you imagine the welcome trust themselves their curators have now decided that henry welcome was the kind of person you can cancel and that his collection is so despicably racist, ableist, and misogynist, mm. according to them, that they're going to close down their own museum. I mean, unbelievable. Uh, they've already had terrible, you know, they've already done those kind of commentaries that when you go in, if you read the notes, you actually get a lecture. Um, they completely insult the public because they don't understand that the public are capable of going in and seeing this exhibition and understanding that at different historic periods and in, around in different countries, there will have been different ethical standards to those that we have in 2022. It's actually a fascinating collection. And I always used to recommend that students and uh, sixth formers would go along to it. And the Welcome Trust was rightly proud of this museum. And now in an act of huge self-loathing, they brought in some curators who decided that the public should be allowed to see this and they're hiding it away. It's incredible, isn't it? It was a bit like going into the Tower of London and somehow coming out with the idea that it's okay to uh, behead your wife, you know, because yeah. Henry VIII did it. So we better not show that to people because they might be affected by it and they might end up going off and beheading their wives. I mean, it's nonsense, isn't it? Well, Mike, you shouldn't say that because at some point some <laughs> director at the Tower of London is going to actually call for that. I mean, some of these things you couldn't make up. And I, I think that's really what's so insulting about it. The interesting thing is that this uh, these curators say that they can't have this exhibition on because it's an indication of uh, privilege and elitism and that Henry Welcome was able to acquire these objects and so on and so forth. Never mentioning, by the way, that he's paying their salaries effectively. You know, I mean, his legacy mm. has, has actually endowed the Welcome Trust with all of this money. Um, but actually, it's they who are the elitists. Yeah. It's they who are exhibiting privilege because they are removing from the public space objects which and artifacts which we should all be able to see. Mm. That was the whole point. Where are they going to go now? They're in hiding. Only certain types of special people with special woke powers who won't be affected by them will have access to them. And it's Philistine because actually it's important for us to understand. We've just had COVID. Mm a massive medical issue has occurred uh understanding the development of pharmacological interventions how we medically uh, have dealt with diseases throughout history all of the different human imagination ways that humans have imagined that they could cure people 
is an incredibly important thing to do. Precisely because it locates what we do in 2022 in terms of whether it's vaccines or how we intervene to, you know, do heart operations or any of these things. You can see if you go to that exhibition, people who are beginning to try and understand things like disease, things like viruses. That's why it's so exciting. You realise that humans forever have always tried to improve the health of their fellow citizens. And this lot have come along and just smashed it up. Yes. And also we've learned as human beings to live with certain diseases and certain viruses and to not allow them to affect the way that we live. But there are some people now in scientific sort of research who think, oh, I know, let's just tell everybody not to do anything. Let's tell everybody not to go out. Let's tell everybody not to go abroad. Let's tell everybody not to go on planes. You know, they seem to have gone sort of backwards in the way that they've dealt with medicine. Well, that's exactly right, because one of the things that you learn from that exhibition, if you go to it, is to recognise that one of the history of humanity has been to not allow natural diseases Mm. to thwart our ambitions, to try and overcome them. And one of the most depressing aspects of the COVID era was when we were told that this virus meant that we had to stop, to shut down society, Mm. close down the economy. We were locked, effectively locked in our own homes denied all civil liberties and we've already made reference to the fact that in China that's at the most extreme in terms of a zero COVID Mm. position but remember that our present Chancellor of the Exchequer actually admired that zero COVID policy and there were people like uh, the leader of New Zealand uh, and and Canada who actually tried to emulate it. Right. I know. Sorry, just why I like the Welcome Collection is it reminds us actually no People have historically said we're not going to be thwarted by viruses and illnesses and never leave. We're going to try and resolve them and get over them and cope and move on. Exactly right. Final question on the EU. Uh, You were a member of the Brexit Party. Rishi Sunak is being urged by no less than the Tony Blair think tank uh, to do a further kind of new Brexit deal with the European Union. These people will never stop, will they? They won't ever stop. And isn't it ironic? that the person who is speaking most sense on this at the moment is Keir Starmer. I'm not (laughs) suggesting that one necessarily takes at face value what he says, but he has made it very clear that he will not reopen negotiations on on the Brexit deal. And he actually says it's frightening and worrying that members of the Conservative Party would even consider it. I do think, however, that the the remaining acts, not remain voters, many of whom are perfectly democratic and accept the vote. The Romaniac elites are determined to undo Brexit. They won't just rejoin the EU, but they want us to join the single market and have effectively the EU interfering in a range of things in this country. You know, not on my Mm. watch, not on yours. Keep our eyes out on this one. Yeah, absolutely right. Good to talk to you. Baroness Claire Fox, their director from the Academy of Ideas, of course full of ideas, full of great thoughts. And actually now I feel as though we now can focus the show uh, on a bunch of different stories, including, of course, uh, the way that China is reacting uh, to this COVID lockdown they've got, including, of course, the NHS, which we're going to be talking about coming up next and why they've got too many managers and not enough beds. And of course, Peter Hitchens is here as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Uh, And of course, if you're listening to Talk Radio, don't forget you can watch this programme on Talk TV as well. It's on Sky 522, Virgin 606, Freeview 237 and FreeSat 217. You can also watch on YouTube and the Talk TV app. 
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on, of course, regarding the expansion of Ules in London, uh, says Alice. What about people who need their cars to visit and support their elderly or disabled parents? Londoners should be up in arms about this. Well, I totally agree with you. Angela says this country is in a mess. We see our money going overseas, paying for immigrant hotels, benefits and higher taxes plus the cost of living. What next? Well, that's very good. Uh, and Sarah says this. Thank you for referencing the freedom rallies that took place in the UK. There were crickets from mainstream media. I presume you don't mean that. Brickbats, maybe. And any who did mention it, smeared and belittled. Never again must be put up uh, with the BS that we were fed. Well, I think that's right. I mean, people are um, revolting in China, which is quite surprising because it's the least likely place you would think a revolution would happen because there is de genuinely dangerous times ahead. If you are in China and you are demonstrating against the state and you are calling for the resignation uh, of the dear leader, as uh, they used to call him in North Korea, uh, then you are putting your life on the line. You're putting your life in danger. But thousands and thousands of people in China are willing to do it. Ian Williams is going to be here later on to talk about that. Uh, he's, of course, our local China expert. Right now, though, let's talk to our NHS expert, which is, of course, amongst many, Dr. Lawrence Gerlis, GP at Same Day Doctor, because we're hearing the army's going to be brought in uh, to help the strike hit NHS, because we've now told uh, that nurses will, in fact, go on strike in two days in December, which is going to wreak havoc. There's also a story this morning in The Telegraph, which says uh, that basically there are more than 2,000 NHS bosses earning six-figure salaries. The salary of the best-paid NHS manager in 2021 is £300,000. I mean, forgive me for saying the old... Uh, adage, you could probably get 10 nurses for that, and you probably could. Lawrence, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Um, I mean, literally, it's like you could do a story a day on the NHS, yeah. and it would never be a good one. Yeah. It would always yeah. be a negative one. I mean, obviously, we know that they're overburdened with managers. We know that they're overburdened with uh, red tape. We know uh, that they can't handle what it is that they're supposed to be handling. But once again, I have to ask you the question, when is somebody going to actually do something about it? Never, Mike. Um, we'll just go on. Talk we'll go on talking about it, which gives you and me something to do. Uh, I, I hate to be pessimistic, um, but I, I'm afraid I am. Mm. Um, I mean, yes, the, the NHS is overregulated and overmanaged, but getting rid of the managers is just—it's a very complex problem. The NHS is full of tribalism, uh, overregulation, uh, too much paperwork, um, envy, bitterness. Uh, factions fighting against each other. You see, waste. You, let's you, not forget waste. waste uh, the whole thing. The whole thing. You see, I see uh, stories of doctors uh, arguing with nurses and vice versa within the hospital. Different firms, surgeons arguing with with physicians, A and E arguing with the admission teams. I mean, the whole system is beset with anger, frustration, envy. And at the end of it, all people say is, "Oh, we're underfunded. Mm. We're underfunded." Well, I, I'm 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 tired of hearing that. And I'm tired of people moaning. I think it's it's time people started doing things. And I mean doctors and nurses rather than moaning. The problem I see with the nurses strike, and actually I think nurses should be paid more, as should junior doctors. Mm. But the problem I see with the nurses strike, it actually hands the initiative to the government. Because come January, when there's an, another meltdown in the NHS, uh, people can turn around and say, oh, well, the nurses went on strike. That's the reason. Uh, so it gives them yet another excuse. Um, I, I can't see what the army are going to be able to do, what they're going to do, bring out green goddess fire engines. Well, I was going to say, uh, I mean, are yeah. they going to set up sort of triage units like MASH or something, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, and, and the idea that uh, army doctors and nurses can march into hospitals, and do you know how much paperwork you have to fill in before you can get a job anywhere 
uh, in the NHS. I mean, it's, it is horrendous. It takes weeks and weeks. So that's not going to happen. Are they gonna, they're not going to drive NHS ambulances. They may have a few army, older army ambulances kicking around, but those ambulances are just going to join the queue outside the hospital. It's not actually going to solve anything. It's a bit of negative uh, reverse sabre-rattling by yes. the government. If you go on strike, we'll call in the army, which may be... Which, which may or may not be a clever move. I, I don't think doctors and nurses should go on strike. Much as I support nurses getting more money, I, I don't believe doctors and nurses should go on strike. I think it's a, an, an abdication of responsibility, um, whatever the working conditions are. Mm. And, the, and the working conditions are, are not just about money and it's not just about funding. You know, the NHS is a terrible employer. They don't provide proper, proper meal breaks, certainly for junior doctors. They don't provide proper rest facilities. Um, it's an unkind, I mean, junior doctors have to move hospitals every four months, often separating from their partners, going to different parts of the country. And, and it's, so this isn't just about money, it's about a culture uh, of bullying um, within the NHS. Mm. Junior, junior, everyone bullies junior doctors, even the nurses bully the junior doctors. Um, you know, nurses' rooms have signs up saying, you know, the junior doctors are not allowed to sit and have a cup of coffee. Yeah. Doctors accused, doctors accused of stealing tea bags, uh, taking them away from from patients' needs. I mean, I hear these stories every day. I have friends at work as junior doctors. It's it's a, a horrific working environment, yes. and that's that's but, been the culture for forty years. Yeah, that's, but you see, this is partly my argument as well that you know we we're told continually that it's all the fault of the Tories and lack yeah, of money yeah, and no, you know yeah. political interference. Yeah. It's not. It's the no. way the NHS is run yeah. by the NHS, and the NHS yeah. Yeah. has to take responsibility for this. Exactly so. Exactly so. It's, it it is a culture. It's been years and years in the making. It's never been addressed. The whole career structure. Um, uh, you know, we, we hear about shortage of doctors. You know, there are 30% more hospital doctors now than there were 10 years ago. Mm. So why are the hospitals struggling? Well, again, there's a story about not being able to discharge people into care homes and so on and so forth. But you're right. It's not. It's for the NHS to sort itself out. And I would start by being a better employer, not, not, a, not just about paying more money to junior doctors and to nurses, mm. but to actually be a caring employer. So, you know, pay people at the end of the month. number of junior doctors who started their jobs back in August, still not getting paid correctly, still not being paid properly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a badly run system. And, and that, the whole uh, pyramid structure whereby doctors have to fight their way up the ladder and then fall off and have to do something yeah. else. It's bad. it's bad. It is bad, but it's also yeah. not, uh, you know, people are not press-ganged into working in it. You choose, you make a decision to become a doctor or a nurse or an anaesthetist or whatever it is you want to do. You don't have to do it. Nobody's making you work for the NHS. If you don't like it, you can leave. And, I mean, I'm always very dubious about some of these activist nurses that come on and have been coming on to this station and others over the course of the last few weeks talking about how, oh, we don't really want to strike, but we don't have any choice. Well, you actually do have a choice. Yeah. You could not go out on strike. Yeah. But also, they say, well, the thing is, people are at risk now. Well, if people are at risk when they go into hospital, then what the hell are you doing if you're a nurse allowing that to be the case? Surely you should be putting things into place to ensure that people's lives are not being put at risk. And if people's lives are being put at risk, tell me why. Tell me how yeah. many nurses you're short of. They say, oh, we've got a shortage of nurses. Well, that's not what I'm told. They've got a shortage of nurses who are not being paid over the odds because they come in from an agency. Yeah. Yeah, and agency nurses are very expensive. And that's, again, another long-running mismanagement problem that you have to hire in locum uh, doctors and agency nurses, which cost more 
and so it's another waste of money yeah um and you're right they do nurses do have a choice they can continue working see i i find a system whereby people are being given outpatient appointments for 2024 mm. i find that by definition unacceptable i don't know how anyone it's bonkers in their right minds can send out a letter and think that's an appropriate thing to do. You've got an appointment in June 2024. I, uh, anyone who does that must realise they're working in a, in a dysfunctional and failed yeah. failing system. Um, and, and that's what people should be looking at. Rather than, than blaming someone else for the problem, they should be looking at what right. they're doing and what they well, are Well, of course, because if you work and, in an and, environment which is useless, surely you're duty-bound to tell somebody that and get it fixed. But everyone just blames everyone else. That's the problem. At, at the end of the day, you know, they, they'll, they'll blame the government. I'm not a political person, but as you say, the, these problems have been going on for 40 years under governments of various colours. And the, the culture has built up time and time mm. again. Um, and, you know, we haven't even started to talk about the GPs and their desire to work nine to five. <laughs> at, at a There's time. not enough time. <laughs> yeah, you know. I mean, um, it is mad, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure that's very nice. It's a bit like saying, look, I'd like to have a job where I work three days a week, I finish work at five o'clock, and then nobody bothers to call me afterwards, and you pay me about £150,000. I think most people would say, yeah, that sounds pretty good. It doesn't mean you can have what you want. I mean, we live in this kind of, you know, culture where people think that they can get what they want. They've forgotten that actually doing a job is supposed to be a service to other people. Yeah, but and, and that goes right through society. We've been trying to recruit doctors and admin staff the admin staff we try to recruit say, "Well, can I work from home?" No, no, I want you. Here. No, I want you. See, I want you facing patients <laughs> face to face and booking them in. I don't want you working from home. And the doctors, of course, we don't have to, uh, you know, do home visits or uh, work nights and weekends. But the doctors just want too much money. Uh, a locum doctor can earn one hundred and thirty pounds an hour right. uh, working as a locum for the NHS. Uh, whether it's in general practice or a hospital, um, and it's very hard for us to compete with that. Right. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely so. right. There is so much wrong. We could talk all day about it, but Lawrence, listen, for the moment, thank you very much indeed. Dr Lawrence Girl is agreeing with me that you can no longer, in all conscience, blame the Tory government for what is going wrong in the NHS. It's the NHS that should heal itself. It's the NHS that should have proper rules in place to prevent the waste to prevent the absolute mismanagement, to prevent the uselessness, the waiting times, all of the things that are wrong with the NHS are entirely down to, guess who? The NHS, right? 0344 499 1000. If you work for the NHS, I'd love to hear from you because if you think I'm wrong about that, then by all means try and convince me otherwise. But I don't think you can because I think if you work in the NHS, you know what it's like. It's rubbish. This is Talk TV. Fast Talk, Street Talk, Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk, Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is a glorious Monday, I'm glad to say. Last Monday in November, apparently. If you're in America the weekend, it was Thanksgiving weekend, of course. Uh, We are going to start December in just about three days' time. I'm not sure I'm ready for it. There's Christmas trees up. There's all sorts of Christmas lights uh, in the local town in Sussex where I was at the weekend. They lit the Christmas lights. And you just think... They didn't used to do that in November, did they? I don't know. Peter Hitchens is here with us. We'll talk about traditions, of course, amongst many other things, including why the church has suddenly decided to uh, bend the knee in the same way that footballers have been doing so. Very ironic, I thought, and a lot of people have made this point, that the English 
national team took the knee against the USA, uh, which is an American thing, um, whereas the Americans didn't. So I'm not quite sure what that means. 0344 499 We'll talk about private schools as well. We'll talk about a great many other things as well. Uh, and coming up in the next hour, we'll talk about China too. 0344 499 is the number. Peter is here. Very good morning to you, Mr. Morning. Um, I found it, I mean, not to get into the whole culture war of Black Lives Matter and all that, but I found it slightly ironic that in the England-USA game that the English took the knee and the Americans didn't, even though it's an American thing. It could be that just that there isn't much interest in America in, their, in what they would regard as their soccer team. No. Uh, basically, uh, about as much interest in, in most American minds as, a, as, a, uh, <laughs> as, as the national netball team. Although they did get it's the biggest... It's not a game they care They did get about. the biggest audience that they've ever had. Well, that Fox. probably isn't saying very 15 much. 15 million, though. which is probably nothing like they get for the Super Bowl. No, well, again, probably the, the Hispanic uh, population in the USA is, is, is increasingly, of course, keen on. Yes. Football, but just as, as a lot of cricket is played among mm. um, among migrants from, yeah. from India and, and Pakistan. And the Caribbean as well. But it's, and, and the Caribbean, mm. but it's still the national games mm. remain yes. American football and baseball and anything mm. else is a bit of basketball because anything else is pretty much a minor sport. Yes, I think that's right. Um, we should talk about football for the first time. I don't think you and I have ever spoken about football, really, particularly. But you well, there's a reason about, for that. I, <laughs> I know nothing about it at all. Does the World Cup sort of pass you by, then, as it, as it were? Well, I do, actually. Um, one of my children urged me to, to, to watch one of the games, the uh, the, the, the um, England versus USA game. The right. Night. It was probably and one of the worst games you could have watched. Indeed, it was incredibly bad. Dull as heck. Um, dull wouldn't even begin to describe yeah. how boring it was, yeah. actually. It was. But it was typically English in the sense that they got everybody very excited with the first game, which was quite exciting, and then the second game being a complete and utter Yeah, opposite. I'm told the theory is that, that what's-his-name, Southgate, uh, has, has one objective in mind, which is to get through the Saint tournament. St. Gareth. Is it? Right, OK. It, it, but he, he apparently his, his, his aim is totally to get into the final. Yes. And if you have to play several really boring games... Yeah with no risks at all to do that, then that's what you this do. This is the tragedy of, of the great English footballing mind, is that, you know, that to get to the final is an achievement, but to, they never talk about winning it. No, it's like well, when you want to win. they don't think they're going to. Well, I don't think they do, but even no. so, they can still strive to win it and say they wanted to win it look, and I, look I, enthusiastic. I, for me, this is an intrusion into the private grief of people who care about football. <laughs> I, I feel I shouldn't really get involved. Well, you managed to turn it into a conversation about the church. Well, yeah, they which turned was it rather interesting. The church turned into that conversation. Yeah. It was an extraordinary uh, posting on the Church of England's website, which was drawn to my attention by, uh, by a, a, a keen reader of mine. Yeah. Look, here, you, you want to look at this. There they were proposing that they postponed uh, the December the 18th carol services in case it, uh, in case it clashed with the World Cup. <laughs> I, it's, I'm sorry, but if you think eternity is important, then it has to be more important than a football well, game. Well, you would think, even if it is the World Cup, I mean, eternity doesn't just come around every four years. It's sort of there all the time, no, isn't it? No, it took me back. I didn't mention it because most people have probably have forgotten it, but there was a, many, many years ago, the, the, I think shortly after the introduction of Colour on the BBC, they yeah. had this fantastically successful drama series, The Foresight Saga. Yeah. Uh, I remember that. Well, they, it, but it, it was shown, and this is before video recorders, and it was shown on Sunday evenings around about the time of Evensong, mm. which is then sort of the very popular service in right. Church of England parish churches. And lots of vicars said, oh, well, what we'll do is we'll, uh, we'll postpone Evensong so that people can watch the Foresight Saga. <laughs> the result was the whole the service died. That was the end it's of that. It almost completely right. stopped happening. I about four or five people might yes. turn up, but it stopped being a major service. And this was, of course, before the days when you could record it and watch it later. 
absolutely none of that at all. No, I think mm. about three people in the country probably have video yeah. recorders now. So you, you can, the great thing about video recorders for me has always been that you you stop watching television because you record something. Yeah. the preview says it's great. Yes. And then you read the reviews and they say it was terrible. So right. you never bother to actually read. And of course, now what happens is that when, whenever the BBC or ITV do their um, collective sort of you know ratings, they count now things that you might have watched later. So oh, is that if you've watched I, if you've watched something on iPlayer, that still counts for. Well, if you did watch it later, okay. But if you might have watched it later, that's a bit of a. Bit of well, a I've always thought these things fix. are a bit of a swizz. Well, you know, all of these these so-called figures which are amortised into something. They've talked to five people you, and multiplied it by a million. You, you try know? and find out how they compile them one day. <laughs> I once did, and I just ended up completely baffled. I had yeah. to lie down. Yeah. I couldn't understand it, and I don't think I was meant. to. No, I don't think anybody does. Nobody really knows how TV figures actually work, and whether you count a particular hour how the hell do you do that I mean do you actually I mean yes if you gave somebody a diary and they were assiduous enough to take it down every single hour every single minute of every hour that they did anything yeah. I would think that was accurate whereas if, sure people are, if people are in church then you know they're there yes exactly right and when they're not in church, you know. You also that, know that too. That you also know that's, that there's not much going on in church because yeah. church is now but in it's, decline, it's isn't it? Yeah, of course, but it's in decline partly because it's so feeble when faced with the spirit of the ages. Oh, well, okay, if there's football, then let's not bother. Right. And then there's other. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The proposal for a nativity play, which uh, we suggested with a nativity Crikey, that's a revolutionary. Has the... um, (laughs) The shepherds singing uh, to the tune of football's coming home. I won't try to sing it. No. Uh, he's coming soon uh, about yeah. the approaching saviour of the world. And you think, well, are you actually taking this issue seriously right. enough? At one point, a, a football lands in the manger, apparently. Yes. Because at what point... This is not being suggested no. by some some progressive primary school teacher. Right. It's being suggested by the actual national church. <laughs> It is ridiculous. Because they are beyond. Yeah, they are beyond the satire. But it is this thing, isn't it, where people become obsessed with? Okay, well, this is the new kind of culture. So let's try and attract the people who like that into the church by making it more like what they like. It doesn't it, work like that. But the truth of it has been. It's very interesting. There are statistics on this, which again are measured by real presences of people in real churches. That the particularly the cathedrals of the Church of England, which have tended to stick to traditional. Mm. Uh, worship with traditional music and old-fashioned ways of doing it have been experiencing larger and larger congregations, mm. whereas the churches which have gone all rocky horror and funky and, mm. have, and, and have made themselves as modern as possible continue to experience a decline. Yeah. Uh, and you would have thought that might, uh, that might suggest to some people that maybe being a bit tougher about what you believe is more likely to succeed. Well, for those people as well who only occasionally go, for example, those who may, may want to go to midnight mass or something yeah. on Christmas Eve, if you do that, you don't want to be kind of confronted with a lot of World Cup style, you know, jiggery pokery, do you? You just expect to be given the traditional carol singing. Well, if you don't, don't go you? very often, you, you you want to see probably what you experience as a child. Yeah. Uh, which obviously will not be what the Church of England wants you to experience ah. because they keep changing everything to right. make it more modern than us. Right. 
Up to date. Up to date religion. It's, it's, it's like luxury bus, isn't it? It's one of those terms that doesn't actually make sense. No, it really doesn't. But you're right to kind of point it out because there is this. I think partly as well, and I mentioned all the Christmas lights going on. And I was quite horrified. Probably about early, I think pretty much early November, I happened to find myself in Oxford Street and all the Christmas lights were up. They weren't actually lit yet because it was daylight. Mm-hmm. And they hadn't officially switched them on, but they were up at the beginning of November. Well, you and were lucky you didn't longer also, and longer. Lucky you didn't also find Easter eggs for next year on display. Well, I mean, they've, they've got to do what they can. That'll be soon. Street. And I was talking to my sister at the weekend in America, and it's always slightly more truncated there because Thanksgiving comes first. Yeah. And so they won't be putting Christmas trees up until probably later this week, which is December, which is fair enough. Yeah, but Christmas isn't such a big deal over there anyway. It's not, no. Think. No, Thanksgiving is the big Thanksgiving holiday. Thanksgiving is really the big holiday. I, I, I came to the conclusion. Yes, and it's interesting that Christmas Eve because it's non-denominational. It's partly that. Also, partly I found that Christmas itself, Christmas Eve, was it. And uh, if you if you went as I tried to do to, to church in Washington D.C. on Christmas morning, mm. it actually wasn't particularly well attended. Everybody had gone the night before, and right. that was it. Okay. And then Christmas was over. They didn't have Boxing Day no. as such. No. Uh, and no, they never understood the, that. The Canadians have Boxing Day, but the the, the Americans don't. Mm. No, it's quite weird. New Year is the same. They don't really understand why you take a day off. Well, I don't day. either, so I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> completely with them. Well, you'll hate it this year because we've got two bank holidays after Christmas, Monday and Tuesday, because Christmas Day is a Sunday. Yes. And then we've got another one on the following Monday, which is going to wreak havoc, of course, with anybody trying to go on strike. Um, because not only yeah. do they not need to go on strike, it's very cunning, because there won't it? be any trains at all. Is, you do, <laughs> defeat, defeat strikes by closing the country down. Yeah, so I mean, can, effectively, can tell. effectively if, if it's not stopped, despite whatever you may hear from Mick Lynch, um, they're now going to strike on the 13th, the 14th, the 16th, 17th. Then the following week will be knackered because there won't be any trains yeah. in the right places and there'll probably be an Aslef strike thrown in. Then it's Christmas. Then it's Boxing Day. Then it's Boxing Day plus one. Then uh, they've got another couple of days left, and then there's more strikes in the new year. Yeah. Well, so I, it's a three-week strike. If it's, if it's the RMT, I look forward to RMT strike days because the trains run better on RMT yeah. strike days. If it's Aslef, the trains do actually stop. Yes, they actually but RMT did strike stop. days, the trains are faster, better, more reliable, yes. in my experience, than they are on the days when the railway companies are striking, right. which is every day <laughs> of the year. The Aslef strike on Saturday, I'd completely forgotten about until it happened. Yeah. Um, and it really did seem to stop people oh, yeah, doing they do. anything. Because they actually drive the trains. They actually drive the trains. That's the difference. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about the NHS, talking of strikes, because the nurses are now going to go on strike for two days, they say. I think they said the 15th and the 20th of December, which seems to me to be completely disastrous because, again, people will have their operations cancelled, presumably, won't they? Well, I'm very sorry about this, but I don't think people who go into professions such as nursing should strike. No, I don't I either. Think it should be, I agree with you. When you. If you want to go in for that sort of work, and it's very noble, and my late aunt, Ina, was a nurse all mm. her life, and totally dedicated. And not particularly pleasant I'd never either. I talked to her about striking. No. Because it would never have occurred to me that she would ever think of doing it. Yes. Because what she, she had, she trained, what, in the 1930s, she'd been a nurse in the Queen Alexandra's mm. in the war, and she'd gone behind the, the advancing yeah. D-Day troops and everything else. And she just believed that her job was to nurse. Yeah. And if anybody had come to her and said, you're going on strike, she'd have laughed mm. at them, I think. And, and I don't, I, and it just simply didn't fit with the, and I know there'd been a lot of changes in nursing. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm not sure entirely for the better over the past 30 years. But do you remember many, many years ago when the Royal College of Nursing suddenly decided to get militant? Mm. But even then, they, they didn't say we're going on strike. They had a big campaign called Raise the Roof yeah. in which they held demonstrations mm. and said we're being taken advantage yeah. of, which they are. And people who don't strike well, are taken advantage of. If, but that, I'm afraid, is the price you pay for wanting to do something which is actually above the level yeah. of, uh, of dedication that most people... And, and as ever, there's a lot of different truths around these stories, though, because depending on which kind of nurse you are, which band you're in, you make reasonable money. Some nurses are overworked, some are not. Some only have to work 36-hour week, and if they don't want to, or if they want to, they can then get overtime for working the rest of it. You know. Well, I try not to criticise other people's uh, work patterns. So do I. I. It's just it's not, it's not for me to do. But I just think with, if you're doing something like that, where people are relying mm. on you ultimately for mercy, yeah. uh, ambulance driving, nursing, being a doctor, uh, being a fireman, or being a, a police officer, you really can't. And I think we should recognize this. Right. And in some ways, the police do better because they are actually banned from striking. Mm. And as a result, they get quite good pay deals. People who are banned from striking yeah. often do. Right. Do you remember when the GCHQ, the, 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 the spooks, yes. were, uh, were banned from striking? Yes. Almost immediately, their pay went up right. quite considerably well, more than ever would have done. Well, the public sector workers are now doing a lot better than they were because yeah. they were yeah. meant to be doing the job. One, because it was, a, it was a sort of vocation. Two, because they got good benefits and decent holidays and a good pension. But and they didn't get a great salary. But now they get all of it. Yeah, but I, I, as again, I just don't think you can. I have a suspicion a lot of people in the nursing profession will not strike when it comes to it. Well, I believe many of them didn't even vote to strike. No, I think so what you've got is a bunch of militants who keep saying, we really don't want to do this. And you go, well, you do, actually, otherwise you wouldn't be doing it. Well, you, yes, exactly. I mean, they, they, what generally people are told when the, when the unions put out strike votes is you, we, we have to make this threat to get yeah. a deal. But we almost certainly will never have to right. use it. But then quite often this now the bluff is called and right. they end up actually having to do the strike. Mm. And all the people I hear talking about doing it sound pretty kind of uh, radical to me. But we'll come back well, to that. Well, let's see. I bet a lot of people will come into work. In yeah, that. I imagine so. Uh, Peter Higgins is here. We're going to talk about schools and education. Peter's got a new book out on that one uh, subject. But on the front of the mail today, we've got Keir Starmer saying that he wants to basically get private schools out of charitable status, which has upset quite a few people, including the Daily Mail. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Peter Hitchens is here from the Mail on Sunday, or the Mail, I suppose you could say. Uh, they've got an interesting story this morning on the front about private schools and the new Labour line on them. Um, but before we do that, let's talk a bit about China, which is... In an extraordinary place this week, it would seem. It seems as though the people are revolting. Well, I, I went did a lot of uh, travelling to China in the early part of this century, and I was terrified by it. I thought that it was the most, one of the most frightening countries I've ever been to because, mm. the, first of all, the possibility it would go wrong, and secondly, the possibility that it would go right and yeah. that China would become the major superpower. And it is, it, it's, it's extraordinary, the, the vastness of the enterprise mm. that's being created there. And, of course, the huge number of people who have been completely oppressed and without yeah. any real freedom of, uh, pretty much since the, the start of the communist regime, and even more so since the current president, Xi Jinping, took yes. over. And, and amazingly, the they're Ch calling for his resignation. Well, they are, but the, the, see, the Chinese apparatus of repression is, is, is not stupid. All those people are being filmed. All their identities are known. As mm. soon as they get home or, or go to work, they will be arrested mm. and carted off. And, and possibly never seen again. And you'll never see them again. And there's, there's going to be a, a contest here between the level of public feeling and the level of fear. Mm. And it, it's not clear how it will work out. You, of course, will remember the great massacre 
uh, of Tiananmen yes, Square. Of course. Uh, people d- didn't realize, I don't think at that stage, how violent the Chinese state could be if it mm. wanted to be. In, uh, but they know now, and they also know how the extraordinarily uh, powerful and all-embracing its surveillance state is now. I would be really scared about protesting against that. And at the moment... I feel just, the courage of the people involved is extraordinary. It is. We've got some footage now of uh, something in Hong Kong. Hong Kong residents actually holding a vigil for oh, the victims me. of that terrible apartment no, fire. Not, not safe there anymore. It's really it? not. Um, and it's in the far the far western city of Urumqi, um, which is... The allegation is that the, the people were being locked in their houses because of COVID. Well, it's very likely. I, I and there was a fire and they couldn't get out. I, I, don't, I don't think it's at all... I think it's, it, it's almost certainly the film there's film of it apparently and it shows what happened yeah. and I think it's it's, it's very likely that you know, we know about people being welded into their, mm. their their flats because of because of the Covid panic and I think this kind of thing has continued. I've been to Rumshi but mainly over the, the, the great contest there between the Chinese and the, and, and the Uyghurs right. who are, it, it used to be the Uyghur capital the area is now very heavily populated by Chinese who've moved in in large numbers. Right. There's a lot of tension there as well. And they've just sort of moved the... the well, it's, the, a, it's a whole, the whole way in which China colonises yeah. its outlying parts is, is quite mm. astonishing as well. It really is. I mean, incredible. Obviously, we'll keep an eye on that. We're talking to Ian Williams later in the show as well about that. He's uh, an expert on what happens in China and what they're doing and what they're likely to do next. Shall we talk a bit about the school situation? Your book is out, uh, yeah. I think, now, um, about grammar schools being shut down. Funnily enough, um, there was a story about one Latimer Upper School, um, which we were talking about earlier. Nick Clegg sent his, has sent his youngest son there. When I was young, I, that was a grammar school, and I, pl- I used to play football for Cardinal Vaughan against. Well, Latimer it was a Upper. special kind of grammar school. Yeah, it was a special. It was the made people go on. Politicians now go on about how we should get the private sector and the state sector to cooperate. Yeah, they never do for, because the, the, the government really hates the, mm. the private sector anyway. But between 1944 and 1974, um, about 180, if you count the Scottish equivalent schools, were called yeah. direct grant or, or, or grant-aided schools. Yes. They were private day schools, mm. but they took in very large numbers of children from state primaries, right. sometimes very large indeed. Who had taken the 11 plus. Who had taken it? the 11 plus and passed it and got absolute Rolls-Royce mm. education for nothing. Right. It was a fantastic arrangement. Many people, Alan Rickman is my favourite example of yes. this, uh, and Alan, Alan Bennett and other yeah. uh, people who came up from very, very, uh, Alan Rickman's father was a painter and decorator, mm. Alan Bennett's father was a co-op butcher. They came up from very, very ordinary backgrounds yeah. into great prominence because of fantastic education available for nothing. Mm. And the reason why private schools flourish in this country is because that arrangement was destroyed. Yeah. And the private schools were dying on their feet in the early 60s because the, the grammar schools and the direct grants were creaming them. And they were much better and then schools. They, and they were, they were, of course they were better because they, it, they were harder to get into yeah. and they had higher standards. Mm. And they were all shut down. And so the private schools were given a great boost because parents who wanted their children to be properly educated and could just about afford it were pretty much bound to pay. Yeah. What this does, this this idea of putting VAT on school fees, mm. of course, is it reserves private schools only for the super rich. Yes, it's a, it's a, actually it's a way of strengthening privilege. Now, why would a Labour government want to strengthen privilege? You well, tell right. Me? I mean, well, you know, education is a com- tremendously valuable commodity, yeah. and if people are prepared to pay for that instead of yeah. clothes and and holidays and, uh, and and big houses, oughtn't we to encourage them? Well, I've often argued the position that if we did away with private schools, all schools would improve because what you'd end up being was a lot more kind of egalitarian. I know that might just be a theory. It hasn't worked. No. And Where every it's time, happened, it hasn't worked. And every time I suggest it, I'm always surprised by the numbers of people who say, actually, no, we work very hard, we're not rich, 
but we put our children into private school because we think we have to do that because the local state school is so bad. And so I always end up changing my mind because it's it's not the purview of the rich anymore. It's, it's, anyway, it's the, a lot of middle class If you people. want to get rid of private schools, have good state schools. Yeah. Private schools are, are not unknown, but they're very much a minority interest mm. in Germany yeah. where they still have a grammar school system. Yeah. And private schools are really for the super rich and for dunces in mm. Germany, and they're not, they don't have Similar the, the to status. America, actually. Well, oh, I, I would say the elite, the real elite in America, the yeah. real super rich, but the very they su- use yeah. the, the, the private schools. Yes, the, the but most of, ordinary people... It's called Grosselsex. Yes. There's a whole lot of... <laughs> of it's, it's an acronym for yes. all the, the top prep schools in the... In yeah, the, in the, but um, they're very... Obama very, went to private school. Yeah, but they're very sort of... They are really elite, aren't they? Yeah, they are. I mean, like no, Trump went there to because almost those, nobody can afford them. Yeah, Trump went to one of those military academies, didn't he? Well, yeah. Well, you, what you want to, you, you, if you want to get good education in America, what you do is you save up for college. Yeah. And try and live in the catchment area of a good high school. Yes. Very similar to here in a way. Right. Now. But the high school system seems a bit more homogenous than the one here, no, which, which no, is all no, over no. the place. Where I lived in in Bethesda in Maryland, there was you, the house prices depended on whether ah. you were in the area of, of a particular right. school. Right. Uh, the great one in those days around there was Walt Whitman. If you if, yeah. you, if your house was in the catchment area of Walt Whitman, the price zoomed up. Right. So and no, then you it's, paid it's property taxes it's, as well. Yeah, it's you? it's disguised private education. Yeah, interesting. Well, I mean, we're almost out of time, but we should mention Nick Clegg, I suppose, because he's back, uh, having been to California. Um, and he's putting his kid in private school, even though um, he branded it corrosive in the past. Well, like you see, I never blame people for putting their children first. No, I don't. What I, what I, what I find, but you just shouldn't it, it, say something these, and then not follow it up. All these people, the, 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 um, whether they get their children to very hard to get into state schools or into private schools, is why don't you recognise that the same problem faces everybody mm. else and do something about making good education available to all who deserve it mm. instead of it being reserved for the rich and the influential. Mm. I don't mind. You always put your children first. It's the right thing yes. to do. But but put other people's children but also nearly that, as first but as then that also in say the policies it. you yeah, pursue. Absolutely right. Peter, uh, very good to see you again. We're out of time. Uh, we're getting closer to the, um, the Yuletide scenario. Um, we're only taking, I think, one week off for Christmas here. So uh, we'll see you next Monday. And um, we will take more of your calls coming next. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A net zero referendum is something we've thought about in the past. And uh, it looks as though, according to a new poll, even more people would like to have it. Lance, a very good morning to you. Yeah, good morning to you, Mike. So um, the madness continues. <laughs> it, it, it does. It's, uh, it's bizarre. Um, I think this is really interesting. This poll is... Um, I mean, it's extraordinary, not just in the scale, but also the direction of travel. You know, you have 62% of people uh, polled um, with with an opinion, um, won a referendum on net zero. A year ago, that figure was 58%. So the number's growing. And that is despite all the information they've heard about COP27 and all the stuff we've got to do to make our you know, make the planet cleaner and so on, and yet they're questioning it. Now, it doesn't, in my view, mean that they actually want a referendum, Mm. but I think people feel disenfranchised because all the main political parties have been saying the same thing, and it's the same with, you know, you go back to the Brexit referendum, you know, you had to be pro-EU, and people felt that they weren't getting a voice. Um, And so, you know, it's it's interesting that, you know, even more so now people are, are questioning the whole basis of net zero. Well, and, they really uh, are. Because, I mean, surely you must question it. Because 
when you have COP27, an organised sort of, you know, jamboree for people from all over the world flying in on private jets to discuss why everybody else shouldn't be flying anywhere, you kind of go, really? And then you sort of forget that it goes on for an extra week after everybody came home. And now we find out that they have, in fact, voted for some kind of reparation-style payment to give to different countries. And it's our money they're talking about giving away. Well, well, that's the thing, you know, net zero, if you believe in it, it is a sort of luxury of prosperity. And when things are going pretty well, you think, oh, well, if it's going to save the planet, why not? But the problem is um, we are now in the most serious cost of living crisis we've had for over a generation. And, and I first started looking into this. Um, you, you remember, Mike, we, we had a conversation October a year ago when my own business's electricity uh, bills uh, doubled mm. from £200,000 a year to £400,000 a year. Now, that's absolutely enormous. Yeah. And it was, it was because of that that I started to look into it and to start, start doing some research. What is it we're actually paying for? Yeah. And I think that's what's going on here. I think people are, you know, it's not easy to do it because, you know, people like the BBC won't let you question climate change. So it's very, it's difficult, but I think people are researching mm. it more and asking questions more and more, which is why I think people are calling for this referendum. And, um, you know, whether we have one or not, there should be much more debate so people actually understand whether, you know, it, it's even good value. Has there, you know, there's not been a cost-benefit analysis. No. Well, every you time know, I ask anybody who is um, a climate change, um, you know, advocate, if you like, and a net zero advocate, what does actually net zero mean? They can never really explain it. They can never really say how it will improve our day-to-day -day lives or indeed how it will improve the planet. And in fact, there are those who say, even if we stopped all emissions now, it wouldn't really make any difference for at least 10, maybe 20 years. And we also well, know... I'll, I'll tell you what it means. It, it means that, you know, um, that we're currently paying, it's currently costing us each household something about something in the region of about two thousand pounds per year mm. for this policy that you know no one's really signed up to, and, and then you you know you have the Tories saying yeah but it was in our manifesto. The problem is it was in everyone's manifesto. Yes. So you know people didn't vote for the Conservatives in you know huge numbers last time round because uh, because they wanted wind farms. They voted to keep Corbyn out. But the Labour Party manifesto had the same policies on net zero. Right. So you know there, there really wasn't a choice on this. And, uh, you know, we, we do need a choice now. We need a proper and full debate because the more you research it, as I've done, the more you realise what complete nonsense most of this stuff is. Yeah, well, exactly right. And I mean, you know, when you look at the, <clears throat> the World Cup, for example, uh, which is apparently uh, going to be carbon neutral, um, you go, actually, no, it isn't. Because the reason they say it's carbon neutral is because they say they're going to plant a load of trees, which will sort of knock off the effects of the carbon that they've used to build all the stadiums. It's, it's literally fantasy. It is, but, you know, there are, there are many scientists out there that believe that uh, carbon dioxide is actually good for the planet. You know, yes, we've seen carbon dioxide, you know, the, the levels of it rising in recent years. There, there are scientists that, you know, that debate whether or not, you know, the, the causal relationship is, is the way around that, uh, you know, people sort of declare that, you know, the hotter planet causes, uh, um, you know, they're saying the heat from the planet actually causes increase in carbon dioxide. But, you know, you have, you have um, farmers 
that have greenhouses that actually deliberately pump carbon dioxide into their greenhouses mm. to get the, the fruit and veg to grow faster. Right. Carbon dioxide has led to the greening of the planet. Right. So, you know, there are, there are scientific questions. I'm not a scientist. I'm a businessman. But, you know, what I'm saying... Well, you're is paying for it, though. We need, to have, we, we need to have a debate about this because it is, you know, it is the single biggest thing that's causing this huge rise in the cost of living. And the thing, I'll tell you what really annoys me, actually, uh, Mike, is that, um, you know, we hear politician after politician talking about how... Putin has led to this energy, you know, the energy crisis and costs have gone up. It's nothing to do with Putin. As I said earlier, my own electricity bills went up in October a year ago. That was five months before the war started. And in fact, they've been going up every year for the last 10 years, just a little bit. But they just rocketed, um, you know, six months before, five, mm. six months before the war started. Putin's, you know, of course, he's exploiting the situation. I don't doubt that for one second. And he might have been. As research has shown, he might have even been funding groups, uh, to, to, you know, environmentalist groups to stop us doing things like fracking here, right. which is what we should be doing. The Americans have been doing it for the last 10 years. They pay almost a tenth of what we pay for our electricity. Mm. No, I know. Absolutely right. I don't know whether you've given any thoughts of what the question would be uh, if we did have a net zero referendum. But Kerry in Melksham says, if there is a net zero referendum, will the question be, do you know what net zero is? <laughs> <laughs> It's worth, worth to try. That's, uh, that's a good one. I'm, look, I, I think uh, I don't actually think in reality we will have a referendum, but we do need more debate. Yes. You know, we we definitely need more debate about this. It's ridiculous that you can't go on to the BBC and question the whole premise of man-made climate change. Yes. You know, you know, and, and the ridiculous thing is they'll call skeptics deniers. Yeah. But they're the ones that are actually denying debate. You know, they are the real deniers here. Yeah. Um, you know, there say there are many scientists that get shut down. They have funding removed um, if if they don't go along with the consensus. Yes. Well, I actually so, heard uh, a BBC journalist on a program the other night saying, "Well, surely there are some subjects for which there there aren't two sides to the argument." And you kind of go, "Really? You think that? Do you actually?" What you just think there's only one side to one to an argument about certain things, like climate change. Well, the thing is, you know, part of the policy, I mean, this is a policy decision to stop debate. And the reason they do that is because they, they don't want to create doubt. Now, you know, if you're talking about fact, fair enough. Um, if you had somebody arguing that two plus two is five, why would you shut them out of debate? You just make complete fools of them. Mm. So have them on and yeah. let them debate it. Let people debate climate change. Let the scientists debate against each other. Because, you know, I'll watch somebody on TV saying, you know, there's a, there's a crisis, and I'll watch another scientist say there isn't a crisis. But you never hear them debating each other. No. And you sort of want to hear that, that interaction because they are the experts. Yes. And, and there are so many, you know, I've read quite a few books on the subject now, and there are so many questions. I mean, the first thing is that all of the future, you know, predictions are all based on modelling. Yeah. What have we just learned from the whole COVID experience? You know, we locked down our economy. We printed five hundred billion pounds worth of, um, you know, uh, debt, which has led us into this crisis that we're in at the moment. All because of models, you know, and we're doing exactly the same thing with climate. Um, and and, and the, the other thing that um, that you learn is that the scientists themselves do not believe there's a crisis. You know, it's the it's the way that the scientific reports have been summarised by policymakers 
to create this sort of crisis situation so it gives them much more policy strength. Mm. But if you read what the scientists are saying, there is no crisis. There's, there, there's a prediction that, you know, if, if, the, if the planet carries, to, uh, carries on warming at the pace it is now, in 100 years time, the global economy might be 5% smaller. That's teeny yeah. in 100 years time. That is not a global crisis. You know, we, we've lost a few percent just because of our well, decisions on COVID. I was going to say, if Rishi Sunak stays in, it'll be a lot worse than 5% down uh, in about five years. So I wouldn't worry about that. But anyway, listen, Lance, good to talk to you. Lance Foreman, former MEP, of course, talking about the net zero referendum, which is now more desirable than ever for an awful lot of people who would like to have a say, who would like to have a conversation, who would like to have the, you know, the pandering to the economic and the environmental lobbies stopped, quite frankly. This is Talk TV. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got plenty to do. Last hour of the show, Ian Williams is here. Uh, we're going to talk about China because there's some very interesting things going on uh, in different parts of China. Uh, there's lots of different um, protests going on. There's now currently one going on in Hong Kong. Uh, we'll keep you updated with that. We'll also talk about why, uh, indeed, we are still continuing to give foreign aid to China, despite the fact that it's a very wealthy country, despite the fact that it's far more wealthy than this country, and we have to actually borrow the money to give them. What's the point? Exactly. We'll hear from Bob Seeley. He was on with Richard Tice yesterday. 0344 Coming up later on in the show, uh, we'll be talking to Jeremy Kyle. He's got his show coming up, of course, at 7pm. We'll find out what he's got to say. Also, Stuart Weir will join us as well. Uh, he will be talking about his very, very good friend, Doddy Weir, uh, who was a Scottish rugby legend who died, sadly, over the weekend uh, because he succumbed to his motor neuron disease. But he had made an incredible um, kind of splash as a rugby player and also as a campaign. Uh, against that particular disease. We'll bring you all of that. Plus, we'll take some more calls as well. 0344-499-1000. How about this from uh, Emma, who says, I agree with you, Lance. Uh, he's talking about Lance Foreman. We do need a net zero referendum. I can't imagine our government ever holding one, though. Uh, if Reform UK made the pledge to hold one, it would be an automatic vote winner. No one wants this ridiculous policy. Very interesting indeed. Let's talk to Ian Williams, though, who's here, writer for The Spectator and many others as well, of course, author of his New, excuse me, his new book, The Fire of the Dragon, China's New Cold War. Ian, welcome back. Good to see you again. Uh, things getting very interesting in China at the moment, aren't they? Very interesting. Mm. We've seen these protests sweep across the country over the weekend um, from Beijing, Shanghai, Wuhan, the city where the virus first mm. emerged, of course, almost yes. three years ago, Arumchi in the far west. And the government seems confused, uncertain. There's a lot of frustration mm. out there. There's a lot of anger. Mm. And they seem surprised that this has suddenly yeah. blown up. Well, because, I mean, it's been a country which has been in lockdown on and off, really for the best part of the last two and a half years and they've imposed new lockdowns and is it a case of the people just saying we've had enough? It's partly that. We've seen some protests sporadically over the months yeah. but I think there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of frustration underlying it and in a sense yes it's all about zero Covid that's yeah. been the trigger, that's what people are annoyed about right. but there's a lot of other grievance there and it's so rare to mm. see these sort of images well, on almost, the streets of China. It's almost you know, unprecedented isn't it? Certainly since the Tiananmen yeah. Square process. Which is a long time ago for people who don't remember Tiananmen Square. I mean, I'm struggling to think 
back exactly, was it the 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, well, 1989, of course, the massacre took yeah. place, but the protests built up towards that. Mm. And there's certainly been nothing like that. It's a like long that. time ago, that. Yeah, and there's certainly been nothing like this since mm. Xi Jinping took power. Right. And, of course, it, it, it's incredible to see the images of the students at, mm. in Beijing um, demanding that she resign, yeah. that the Communist Party give up power, holding up blank white pieces of A4 paper, yeah. um, blank because they're protesting about censorship right. and the lack of freedom of expression. Right. And, incredibly, the biggest paper manufacturer in Shanghai this morning was forced to is- issue an announcement saying, they had not taken all the white paper off the shelves of every shop in Shanghai. And this is rapidly becoming a symbol of Mm. the new protest. And of course, as you mentioned, it's reached Hong Kong this morning. Yeah, there is one in Hong Kong as well. Where there are so many festering discontents and anger that go back to the suppression of democracy and the national security law that people have leapt upon the deaths at the weekend Mm. in Urumqi. Ten people died burnt to death in a high-rise building. The claim is that they couldn't get out right. because they were under lockdown. So they were basically sealed in. Yeah. It's horrendous, isn't it? But, I mean, it's very unusual for several reasons, but also quite dangerous, is it not, for some of these people to protest? And many of them are wearing masks, I know. I was listening uh, to a commentator earlier today. Um, but they can be identified, I'm sure, by the authorities. They can, and it is dangerous, and the default reaction to any protests in China is repression, mm. and quite severe repression. But I think, rather like the virus itself, you're seeing a kind of... This, this could turn into whack-a-mole. Yes. You know, you, you suppress one protest, and it emerges right. somebody, somewhere else, because a feature of it is the sheer breadth and at all these different cities mm. where it's happening at once and mm. it really is quite a severe challenge to Xi Jinping nothing like he's had to deal with before and are they coordinating these protests by social media means and things because everybody knows well anyone I know who's ever been to China uh, you can't really use social media there like you can here so you take a, you get a VPN or something is that what a lot of them are doing yeah and it's a game of cat and mouse the images will be posted and then the sensors will be running to try and Delete it, it down, before yeah. it can be wide. Right. Be, I mean, you remember those images last week from mm. the iPhone factory, yeah. iPhone City, the battle of iPhone City. Right. Incredible images of clashes between mm. riot police clad in white hazmat suits and protesters. Yeah. And they were spread quite widely and they were spread at such a pace mm. that the censors were struggling to keep up with them yeah. to get them. You just can't do it. I mean, uh, that is the beauty, I suppose, of social media. Rather like the Arab Spring yeah. was kind of founded on the back of people sending messages to one another. This may be the the same thing exactly and people become more confident mm. and and, the, and they'll see protests in one city and that'll inspire them to right. come out onto the the streets themselves right. and you know the the depth of frustration and confusion because don't forget only a couple of weeks ago the government announced in china it was going to ease restrictions yeah. a little bit you know that lasted about 10 minutes exactly. or seven days mm. and then because they now have a record number of cases 40 odd thousand not massive in the bigger context of things, but for China, that's the most they've ever had. And, of course, any notion of easing restrictions Mm. have gone right out the window. And, of of course, Xi Jinping can't escape from this personally because he is so closely Mm. identified with the zero COVID policy. And if they're asking for his head, as it were, then it's going to be tricky. And it's interesting as well because this week we've learned that Britain is still giving China 51.7 million uh, in foreign aid. And uh, yesterday, Richard Tice uh, was on this very programme uh, talking about it with um, Bob Seeley, MP. This is what Bob Seeley said when he was asked why we're still doing it. A minister of a government mm-hmm. who's trying to save money 
and you know where where, where all the cash is really tight. Can a minister really have approved this, or or is this being done on the nod by mm -hmm. civil servants, senior civil servants, without ministers' authority? Because uh, th there's a real transparency issue here, and and fundamentally, there's a question of mm -hmm. uh, some foreign aid is good, and as you quite rightly say, but it it must be all about quality, not quantity. Voters will lose trust in the whole concept of foreign aid if you get stuff like this going on. I completely agree. Look, I'll write to James tomorrow about this because I think you've raised a really good point. And when I saw it in the media, I was concerned because I thought we were stopping aid to China as well. Bob Seeley there saying we must stop aid to China. Foreign aid is always a thorny subject with many uh, ministers because they always argue, don't they, that it's there because it's a sort of soft dip diplomatic power that we've got because it guarantees other trade deals. It's always a bit woolly, isn't it? It what is. It, what it's, 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 it's extraordinary that there is such a large amount mm. of aid still going to China. I guess they would argue that, yes, it's soft power. Yeah. It's helping us maintain some influence. But mm. we need to know how and where. Right. In what way is it being used? Because, you know, at the end of the day, he is an increasingly hostile country, mm. which is throwing money at the modernization of its military yeah. at a pace we've never seen before right. in peacetime. So you think, well, OK, so f for the 50 million that we provide, that's 50 million displaced that mm. can go into ways that the Chinese government wants to spend, which are not friendly towards no. us. And at the very least, there needs to be transparency. OK, if they want to make a case about this being an advancing somehow British interests mm. on a, in a soft way, then explain to us yeah. how that's happening and where the money's going. And President Xi, as we saw um, at the G20, when he had that sort of slightly off-the-cuff conversation with, uh, with Monsieur Trudeau, um, you know, doesn't really look as if he cares what the West thinks of him, doesn't really seem to be bothered um, by whatever is, he is accused of doing. I think that's one, been one of the big features of Xi Jinping's rule. He doesn't care. I think he has, he holds the West in contempt. Mm. He regards it as being in decline, yeah. decaying. Not fit for purpose. Absolutely. He's not wrong, is he? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, when you look around Europe right now, yeah. you know, energy-wise, you know, the squeeze is on. Yeah. Russian um, gas has been, you know, the, 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 the absolute death knell for, for energy prices in, in the West. China has been buying, I believe, gas from, uh, from Russia because they can. They're building up huge reserves of coal. They're building up huge reserves of money. You know, and there's no, there's no way, really, that, that the West can compete with them. Well, they're taking advantage of the, uh, all the excess mm. bits and pieces that the Russians have, which yeah. they can't sell to the West anymore, particularly hydrocarbons. Right. So China's scooping those up at discounted prices. Um, although, of course, the Chinese economy is in a pretty bad way. At yeah, the I was hearing this morning, I think, actually, that um, the supply chain in China is starting to be affected by this COVID lockdown. There's a lot of things which are not being produced, which would otherwise have been produced. That's right. I think a lot of people may be noticing this. Mm. If you order stuff which would normally turn up quite quickly, right. the time it's taking because it's coming from China is much longer mm. because supply chains are so messed up. And yeah. of course, we saw with the battle of the iPhone, of iPhone City last last week, this mm. colossal factory complex yeah. that produces Apple's iPhone 14, or mm. most of them, right. um, is, is facing big problems. Mm. And Apple, more perhaps than most countries, has been very slow to examine mm. its, its uh, supply chains, and it's heavily committed and heavily dependent upon China. Mm. That's an extreme case, but a lot of companies are like that. 
um, and have been very right. slow to learn that they, they need to diversify. They, sure. need to, they need to look elsewhere. And so do you think this could end up in a sort of Tiananmen Square style reprisal from the, from the government and their forces? It'll be interesting to see how it develops. There isn't a focus mm. in, the, in the same way that there was in Tiananmen Square. Right. This, is, this is all over the countries. They're all over the country. It's breaking out in different cities from Hong Kong to Shanghai to Beijing. Mm. Uh, is the coordination, I think, maybe loosely. People are seeing what's happen el happening elsewhere. There's an enormous amount of frustration, anger, confusion as to what the government policy is. Mm. People are just sick and tired of being forced to stay at home. Endless lockdowns, endless testing, um, being treated like cattle. Yeah. I mean, it's a very... You know, brutal way in which this th th these policies are being enforced across China. Mm. And when you see the deaths in Urumqi, that comes not long after 27 people died in a coach crash mm. when they were on their way to quarantine. Yeah. And people are saying, hey, you know, there are more collateral deaths, there's more collateral damage mm. um, from, from the figures. And we have to take the figures with caution. But there are articles that have emerged in China about the mental health crisis, right. especially among young people. Um, and, of course, people at the universities, um, Beijing, Shanghai, um, those at the forefront of the protests over the weekend, their unemployment is running at 20% yeah. in urban China. The, the life prospects of a lot of these kids that are facing graduations, uh, graduation are, are, are not great. Mm. And you know, so there are a lot of issues underlying the, the, the anger here. Right. Interesting times. Well, we'll keep an eye on it, Ian. Thank you very much indeed for popping in. Ian Williams' new book out, The Fire of the Dragon, China's New Cold War. But you have to wonder, um, these very brave people who are demonstrating against the Chinese authorities, how that will all end for them and exactly what will happen to them uh, in the next week or so. We'll keep you updated with everything that happens as it happens over in China uh, throughout the day here and throughout the week as well. Uh, coming up, uh, we're going to be talking to Stuart Weir about Doddy Weir's death. Uh, we're going to be talking to Jeremy Kyle as well. We'll take more of your calls too. 03444. 991-1000 is the number. This is Talk TV. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.